fourth chapter of Colossians. There's a whole lot of uninhabited territory in Australia's outback. The landmass, if you can picture this in your mind, is almost the same as that of the continental United States. If you slice off California and Florida, that's about the landmass of the outback of Australia. Yet Australia's entire population is less than four times that of Minnesota. So you take four times of Minnesota and you string it out around the coastline where most Australians live in a landmass that's nearly as large as the continental United States and you realize that that outback, that large center of Australia is one vast desolate stretch of sandy waste. Yet there is a man who lives out there all by himself in a small house a gazillion miles from the nearest human being. This modern day hermit is so isolated in the outback that his only contact with people is the occasional train that passes by and there's some rail workers that he's contracted with that kick off a crate of supplies to him. That's all that he needs. All the face time this mate needs is just those workers waving as they go by on the train. We might chuckle a bit at such a guy rather than merely pity him because I think at times we identify with him. It's not always easy to live in cooperation with people, is it? And sometimes you wonder if a little shack in the middle of the outback isn't exactly what you need, at least for a while. But then again, we chuckle at hermits because we know that they're living in a dream world. Imagine this man. I don't know of any individual, any human being who is more isolated from other human beings than this individual, if he's still alive and still out there. But think of it. It took an awful lot of people to cooperate to lay down that rail across the outback. It takes a lot of people to coordinate the rail system and the workers that take that train and the people who pay to, to ride it. And it took some people to knock down some trees and to turn those trees into a crate that is then stuffed with goods that come from all kinds of manufacturers to keep this man alive. By creative design, we are communal beings. We must work in partnerships to accomplish almost anything of value in this world. This is simply how we were created. At the genesis of human history, Adam and Eve had to partner together to have children. And at stages of Eve's pregnancy, and certainly soon after birth, Adam had to care very much for his wife and provide food for her. And then Cain and Abel were dependent upon their mother's milk for life. And before long, Cain was farming the land for food, and Abel was herding sheep as primitive agriculture and horticulture and textile industries formed out of man's mutual co cooperation in a quest to survive and to subdue the earth. As human beings, we are wired to partner together with other human beings. 
to accomplish in community much more than we could ever accomplish in isolation from one another. And I think of this idea as it pertains to the church of Jesus Christ and would say to us all, if you are a born-again believer in Christ, God has chosen you to partner with other believers to advance the cause of the gospel. He has chosen you to partner with other believers to advance the cause of the gospel. This is his calling upon us. Our master was sent to earth to seek and to save lost souls and has called us to join in his mission. This means that we cannot ignore the needs of the lost, certainly. It means that we must be zealous about the sanctification of God's people. And it means that we must partner together with other believers to advance the gospel of Christ. On no front in God's kingdom is there room for an isolationist. Now I'm not saying there aren't times for us to set ourselves aside, to get alone with God and to isolate in prayer as Jesus clearly did. But I'm talking about an orientation of isolation. It's nowhere to be found in God's purposes. And this reality surfaces so clearly for us here in this last section of the book of Colossians. It surfaces in the way that the Apostle Paul closes out his arguments to his partners in the gospel at the end of this letter. And as we wade through these words of commendation and exhortation, it be easy for us to skip by them. To just look at them as somebody else's letter and other words to other individuals. But I think as we look through this text of Scripture, we will find characteristics that distinguish faithful partners in the cause of the gospel. And we want to apply that to ourselves and to our church directly. But I think also if we will be careful to consider, we will see that there is a culture here. A culture of partnership in the cause of Jesus Christ. We start at verse 7 of Colossians 4 with Tychicus. Tychicus, this man had an interesting ministry with Paul. He was a native of Asia, of Turkey today. An individual that Paul commissioned to minister to various believers. We find in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Tychicus was chosen to minister to the believers at Ephesus. In Titus 3, Paul questions whether or not he may send Tychicus to Crete to minister there. And later, Tychicus will travel with Paul on his last missionary journey to Jerusalem, joining the apostles' entourage that brought that substantial financial gift from the Gentiles to the Jews at Jerusalem. But we read here then that this Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. That is, Tychicus will carry this letter to the Colossian church, and for good reason, notice here, think of it, Paul assumes the Colossians anxiously await news of his status and the success of his evangelistic efforts. Before returning to that point, Paul is now going to commend Tychicus' partnership in the gospel with three descriptive phrases. Verse 7, he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. He is a beloved brother. The gospel unites us together as God's family. There is clear evidence of Jew and Gentile united together in the common enterprise of the gospel. 
This beloved brother, says Paul, serves with me in the gospel. He's a faithful minister. That is, Paul trusted this man. He could put confidence upon him to follow through in ministry to God's people at Ephesus, perhaps at Crete, in Jerusalem. Tychicus was a guy Paul could lean on. He was a faithful minister. And he was, thirdly here, a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus served Paul, but ultimately Paul acknowledges here that both he and Tychicus were serving the cause of Jesus Christ as slaves. This was their orientation. In the Lord, speaking of that union with Christ that Paul has been articulating through this book, consider again chapter 1 and verse 27 where Paul has said to these believers, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are in the Lord, and we are fellow bondservants of Christ, serving together as brothers in the gospel. Paul says of this man, verse 8, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, that you may know how we are. Think of it again. Don't let it just pass by as the ending of a book, but consider it carefully about the relationship that these individuals have with one another. Genuine partnership in the gospel is evidenced by a keen interest in the activities of those with whom we partner. To say it more pointedly to us, a church that has no interest in the gospel activities of other churches and of her missionaries is guilty of self-centered isolationism. We should care about the gospel of Christ and those who spread it faithfully wherever they are. He will tell you about me. The Colossians are anxious to hear. And he will encourage your hearts. One way this man served the cause of the gospel was to encourage believers to persevere in the faith. Notice that the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, did not view evangelism as merely proclaiming the gospel to the lost. For Paul, the cause of the gospel was a quest to contribute to the transformation of sinners from new birth to glorification. The gospel enterprise is not merely, as we use the word, witness to the lost, but the gospel enterprise is the whole process of seeing one transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so this man, Tychicus, would serve the Colossian believers in just that way. He will encourage your hearts in the things of God. Going back to that passage in chapter 1 at verse 28, I think Paul has spoken of this very work there. As he says there, he will proclaim, him we proclaim, I'm sorry, verse 28 of chapter 1, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. This is Tychicus. He's in the same thing, in the same task, longing for these Colossians to go forward, and he will encourage your hearts, says Paul. I can count on this. He's going to come as a loving minister, and he will encourage you. Building up of believers is a crucial aspect of the gospel enterprise. 
Now, Tychicus would have a partner to accompany him to Colossae. Verse 9, we read of him and with him, that is with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus, who is he? One of the great stories, fascinating stories of, the great, of grace in the New Testament. Onesimus, Onesimus was a Gentile slave who ran away from his master, Philemon, who was most likely a member of this very Colossian church. And on the lamb, Onesimus ran into some sort of trouble and ended up in jail. And he meets this really odd duck who just doesn't fit the jail uh, context very well by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And there in that prison, Paul the Apostle leads this escaped slave, Onesimus, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul witnessed to anyone he saw. It didn't matter if they were a Roman soldier, if they were an escaped slave, if they were in the highest echelon of the Jewish leadership. He shared the gospel of Christ, and he does with this escaped slave who is in jail. And the man comes to Christ, gloriously saved, and while there in prison, Paul instructs him to go back to his master, Philemon, to go back now as a newborn brother in the faith. This story was well known by the Colossians, as indicated here by Paul's reference to Onesimus as one of you. He was one of the Colossian believers, this man who has been so gloriously converted. And like Tychicus, Onesimus is also described here as a faithful and beloved brother. Again, think of who's writing this. Paul, salvation in Christ, places this slave in direct partnership with the apostle as a brother in Christ. All the walls come tumbling down as we come to Christ. And we join together in union to share the gospel. A brother who can be equally trusted to convey the status of Paul to these Colossians. And then there is in verse 10, Aristarchus. My fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus was a native of Thessalonica. And put all this together. We got guys from Colossae. We got guys from Thessalonica. We will have those from, these from Asia here. We will have some Jews that will come down the road here. But ministering the gospel in Ephesus with Paul, this man was dragged into the theater. You remember that in Acts chapter 19. He's one mentioned where the mob came together and just about took their life. They pulled him into this theater in Ephesus. This man was there. He was drug into that situation. He was a brother in Christ, who accompanied Paul on his last journey to Jerusalem. So it means if, all, if we have as much as, we're, we're to, as we, if we can understand this uh, from what we read in the book of Acts, he's one who was in the deep. He was in the ocean with Paul, struggling for his life during that shipwreck and eventually came to Rome where Paul appealed to Caesar. But at this time, Aristarchus is imprisoned with Paul. Some partner right now with Paul on the outside, Tychicus, Onesimus, carrying the letter. And there's some who are partnering with Paul on the inside. And that is Aristarchus, who is imprisoned with him. Both kinds of partnerships were needed. And then there is Mark, chapter 10, or verse 10, rather, in the second part of the verse. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Parenthetical thought, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Who's Mark? 
I'm so thankful that he's in the story. I praise God that he's in the partnership. Who is Mark? As is obvious from the story of Aristarchus, the spread of the gospel is no safe enterprise, and it calls for earnest devotion. Mark had that kind of devotion. He loved God. It was a church that met in his mother's home. He knew the Apostle Peter, it appears, very well. And he was very willing to go to whatever lengths to serve the cause of Christ. And so when Paul and Barnabas set out for their first missionary journey, they brought this man with him. He is the nephew of Barnabas. And they said, let's bring Mark with us. And Mark went across to the island of Cyprus with Barnabas and Paul. And it would appear at that point that things were going well, but then they crossed to the mainland, back to Asia, and came to this little town by the name of Perga in the province of Pamphylia. And there, for reasons that we don't know, Mark turned around and went home. It's one nasty stretch of land right there in that place, and that may have had something to do with it. He may have just been tired. He loved God. He had served God for some period of time here, but now he abandons ship. And he goes back to Jerusalem. This bothered Paul so much that Paul said, not again. We're not going to trust this man any longer to partner with us. And so when Barnabas and Paul, you remember, were going out on their second journey, they ended up in such contention over this man that they split ways. Barnabas put his arm around Mark and said, yes, Mark, abandon us. He left us. But we can trust him now. And I think... We can take him here, and he takes him and goes back across to the island of Crete. And Paul says no and takes Silas with him. But through a story that we do not have in the text of Scripture, Mark comes back under Paul's confidence. Think of this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says concerning this Mark, he is very useful to me for ministry. Barnabas was perhaps the better man in recovering Mark, at least the man that God used. But we must commend Paul, I think as well, for not putting Mark into a box and leaving him there for life. Mark dropped the ball at Perga. His faith proved weak. He didn't follow through on the mission. Paul was so opposed to him that he was willing to put at risk his relationship with Barnabas. So we're not talking about a small issue here. And yet, when Mark showed signs of faithfulness again, Paul adjusted his relationship with him. He had room to see the man grow and become a minister in the faith. Eden Baptist Church needs... Barnabas-type people. We need that. We need people who can see weaknesses in other believers and pick them up and get them back on track. People who can come alongside when there is failure and who can say to an individual, let's go forward from here. And Eden Baptist Church also secondly needs Paul-like people who are able to discern faithfulness in ministry but who have the capacity to let someone out of the box 
when they show progress. There are those who fail, but there are those who recover, and we need to know who they are. Next individual is Jesus' justice in verse 11. Jesus, who is called justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Jesus' justice, along with Aristarchus and Mark, are Jews. He is a Jew and a comfort to Paul. Their service for the kingdom of God comforted the heart of the apostle in the midst of the pressures of ministry. Ministry for Christ in a fallen world is an enterprise that is filled with trials and disappointments. And how I praise God for partners in ministry who deliver comfort. They're not always easy to find. But what I note here in the heart of Paul is a real vulnerability, isn't there? Paul was no stoic isolationist. I take whatever comes to me in ministry and I can handle it on my own because I trust God. We find numerous references in the New Testament to a Paul who was vulnerable, who knew that he needed other people and was willing to be encouraged by them and to say that in this message to these believers. He's been a comfort to me. He rejoiced in the responsibilities that these men shouldered. They are my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. We come in verse 12 to Epaphras, perhaps a native of Colossae. Epaphras was, in any event, the evangelist who brought the gospel to these believers. Chapter 1 and verse 7. Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling in your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He is a servant of Christ along with the others. He is secondly an earnest intercessor. That is a zealous man of prayer for other people. Notice here it says that he is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The Greek word is agonizing, intense exertion, a word used often in the exertion of athletes. This man works hard in prayer for you. The goal of those prayers is that you would stand mature that you would be fully assured in all the will of God. And once again, we hear that refrain that Paul gave us in chapter 1. We proclaim him that we would present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that is powerfully working within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This man, Epaphras, shares that same struggle. He agonizes in prayer for these believers, that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. That is, that they would have minds transformed to prove God's good will. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. As we thought earlier this morning in our adult class of the word of Jesus, I do always those things that please the Father. He is pleading and agonizing with God in prayer that these people would do what Jesus did. To always do what pleases my Father. We need to know what the Father wants, and we need to have a desire to do what the Father wants. And that is how this man prays for these people, with agonizing prayer. I wonder, 
So we think of Epaphras in verse 12. Do you pray earnestly for anyone outside your immediate family? Can you look at your life and give names? First and last names of actual people for whom you agonize in prayer outside of your family. If you don't for anyone inside your immediate family, we need to start there, I suppose. But do you agonize in prayer for anyone? Do you pray earnestly to see Christ formed in this assembly? I think one of the clearest paths to the development of such earnestness is right here in the idea that we see of Epaphras, and that is that he was a spiritual father to these individuals. When you lead an individual to saving faith in Jesus Christ, there is a natural passion for their growth. And it's a natural passion we need to realize in our lives in one form or another. It was at age 19 that my life took a tremendous turn as I began to follow Christ. And I remember just soon after that time, within a year or two, a high school friend played ball with him and knew him very well, and I met him um, in a different context outside of high school, but I had the privilege to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he seemed so hungry. And he responded in faith to that simple message, which wasn't very polished and wasn't all that it should be. But he responded in faith and with joy received Christ as his Savior. And I remember, this was we met in another state, but I went back to where I was in college here in, in Minnesota. And on that spring, I remember, just as God was forming all of these passions in my heart, running, on the track, it was a track so small it made you dizzy, but there was this little room with a track in it that I ran around. I remember running around that track and pouring my heart out in prayer that this young man would grow. When you point someone to the light, there is a natural passion that you have for them, a zeal that it can be born in your heart to see them grow in Christ. And this is Epaphras. He brought the message to these people and he longed for them to mature in Jesus. There was another friend at that very same time that also came to trust Christ as Savior. Just in God's grace. And this is a story I have a hard time telling, but I think it illustrates something of the point. I want to press it home here. We lost touch with one another after he made that profession of faith in Christ, and I didn't know if it was real or not. I'm not minded of like some, that when a person prays a prayer, we know they're in the kingdom. We don't. But I knew there was something that happened that night, that God was working. He bowed in simple prayer and put his faith and confidence in Christ And we lost touch with one another in college as he went to another college and I never knew really what happened to him. But in the mercy of God, for 22 years, I prayed for Mark 
22 years of pleading with God that he would grow this man, not even knowing if he was alive, not knowing if my prayers were even legitimate because I didn't know if he was alive, but pleading that God would grow this man in Christ. 22 years later, he called me and shared with me that he was a member of a Bible-believing church, married to a Christian wife with two children, who was growing in Christ. And shared with me the journey that he took of its twists and turns with no real guidance in his life at the beginning, and finding a solid Bible-preaching church, smaller than this one in Detroit, where the people took him in and nurtured him in the faith, and how from there he'd gone from one place to another, and God had grown him in Christ. And just recently we had the privilege to finally meet face-to-face after 22 years, 24 by the time we met, and to see his lovely family, and to hear of his testimony of faith. I can't describe the joy. And I've waited a long time to tell you because I have not been able to do so without weeping. There are others in this assembly today for whom I have particular affection because of this very thing. You point someone to Christ as Savior, you have a passion to see them grow. There's a natural zeal in your heart. And so when we say, is there a deep zeal in your soul to see others come to faith in Christ and to grow in maturity, so often we ask that, but it's disconnected from any effort that is put forward to participate in the work of God. In other words, prayers can become spectator sport in which we are asking God to do something as we watch God work and as we watch other people work, and we need spectator prayers. We brought before the Lord this morning in prayer the Day family and the work that they're doing in India, and particularly for those of us that have visited there, but for all of us as a church who have seen pictures on the wall, we can think of specific individuals that have come to Christ in that ministry, and we pray for them, in a sense, as spectators, or should use the better word, partners. But you know what I mean. There's a sense in which we stand back and watch what others are doing in the faith, but there is something that comes to our prayer life. There is a zeal that is born within when we are praying about the work that God is doing through us. And as we begin to narrow in on individuals, it may be someone we lead to Christ in the grace of God. It may not be that. We may simply be sowing seed. We may be putting our arm around someone who needs to go forward, but I need to be doing the work in order for my prayers to be lit with a fire of zeal. Even if God only permits you to sow seed, pick out people for whom you can labor in intercessory prayer for their ministry and pray with all your heart. Watch God work. Watch Him transform and labor in prayer even when He doesn't. This was Epaphras. He pours out His heart for you 
in prayer. He loves you. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, two neighboring towns. Epaphras did not invest leftover time and energies. He poured out life and soul to teach the believers of the towns of Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis to follow Christ. May we follow his example and give ourselves to the cause of Jesus in the life of others. We come in verse 14 to Luke, the beloved physician who greets them as well. Luke, of the author of Luke and Acts, perhaps attended Paul as his doctor. That would certainly have seemed to be his, his reason for coming, forming another link in this gospel partnership. We don't read of anything that Luke did as far as starting a church necessarily. I have suspicions at times he may have something to do with the book of Hebrews, but that's a minority opinion uh, and not a solid opinion on mine. But there's no evidence of Luke particularly relating to people in the way that some of these others did, but he's part of the partnership team. And he greets them, and Demas greets them as well. Paul offers no commendation here to Demas, It may be too much to conclude that he's concerned about the man, but in the end, Demas was a tragic figure. In his first letter, just before, or I'm sorry, in his last letter, just before his execution, Paul writes to Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Gospel partnerships can crumble tragically, and it did in the case of Demas. He loved the world, and he abandoned the cause. In verse 15, we read of Nympha, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Again, this is close to Colossae. And Nympha, and the church in her house. Church buildings didn't start until the 3rd century, weren't used until the 3rd century, and they were usually just converted homes at that. But churches met at this point in people's houses. This woman's willingness to prepare her house and to make it available for the sanctification of others evidences sacrificial love and a keen sense of faithful partnership in the gospel. I suspect that eternity will reveal women who accomplish as much for the gospel through hospitality as some evangelists who spend their days confusing believers and giving false assurance to sinners. She put up the church in her home, and the church met at least weekly. Perhaps she had a courtyard there in her uh, eastern home, and it's difficult to know how large her home was, but she had a home that allowed a housing for this church And Paul greets her as a partner in the gospel. There's a few of you, a few select ones here, who have groups that meet in your home periodically on Sunday nights. And let me just say to you, in light of this, let's take heart from Nympha. That's not an easy work, always. At least if your house is given to chaos, as is ours at times, it just never seems to pick itself up and keep itself clean with four kids. It's work to get things ready when the church comes over. It's work, but it's good work. It's eternal work. There are those who work on this building here and keep it fit, which would be very similar, perhaps, to the commendation that Paul gives here 
those that allow this building to be a place that works efficiently for the church. There's a partnership in the gospel there. And generally speaking, those willing to give of their time and their possessions to the cause of Christ are partners in the gospel in a real sense. Verse 16, he continues, I'll just finish out here to the end, that when this letter has been read among you, have it read to the church of the Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. There's an awful lot there we aren't going to stop time to consider, take time to consider uh, as far as uh, this letter that is no longer extant, but what it indicates is a partnership between these believers. There is a partnership between them to share the truth from the Apostle Paul. In verse 17, we have one more individual listed here. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It's a tantalizingly narrow phrase. We don't know who he was. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what his ministry was to be. Some have conjectured that he was perhaps in charge of the Colossian church while Epaphras was away visiting Paul and that this man, this might even be a phrase then that was uh, seeking to bolster his authority in the assembly. There's, we don't know. All we can say for sure is that all partners in the gospel share the potential to fail God in the assigned ministry that he gives to them. Make sure that you, have, that you fulfill the ministry that you've received of the Lord. There's a calling here from God that's unique to this man, and Paul warns and edifies him to fulfill this responsibility honorably. And so he closes, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, as he probably did as he penned this last part of the book. A man in prison, commending his partners in the great cause. One thing we can't miss in all of this letter uh, closing is the diversity of gospel partnership. We have in this section Jew and Gentile working together. There's never been a greater wall perhaps ever erected dividing people than Jew and Gentile. But that wall is not here in this passage. Jew and Gentile are working together in the same cause, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's far more dramatic than we could possibly imagine in our setting, but we need to note it. We have here men and women working together in the cause of the gospel, certainly with distinctive roles as men and women, but having a partnership there. And thinking of Paul's words to the Philippian church, fairly close nearby, as he commends these women who are fellow partners in the gospel with him. There's no false division here. There is slave and free that are working together as we consider Onesimus and his work, and Paul commending him to go back to his master in that culture, time, and setting, and situation to submit to his master because of the prevailing culture of the time, all the while undermining the very institution. But saying to him, go back, submit to your master, and tell him, you are a brother in Christ, which should dramatically change their relationship. And again, we see this slave operating among the Colossians as one of their own and having this very important responsibility in the assembly. So Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and free, all working together in partnership, new converts and established believers as well, sharing together in the gospel enterprise. Great diversity 
in this work. We are called out from this world, different kinds of people, from different walks of life and different experiences, to join in a cause that is greater than ourselves. We have sought always to tear down the concept that the church is some sort of market, marketed program to consumers. It is not. It is a family of God, and we are to partner together in this family to proclaim the gospel of Christ together. We have a job that's bigger than us, and we are not to come to the assembly to consume something and go and forget about it, but we are to partner together in this great cause. It leads to my second point, very much part of it, in intermeshing with the first, and that is there are no outback Christians in the Bible. There might be Christians who are in the outback and Christians who minister there, but there's no outback Christians, if you follow what I'm saying. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells characterizes so many Christians sitting in churches today when he says this, expressive individualism. Individualism is driven by a deep sense of entitlement to being left alone. To live in a way that is emancipated from the demands and expectations of others. To being able to fashion its own life in the way it wants to. To being able to develop its own values and beliefs in its own way. To resist all authority. To be free in these ways, many have come to think, is indispensable to being a true individual. That is well said. Characterizes our world. And that kind of individualism is rebellion against God's will for his people. Are you partnering with others in the advance of the gospel and the nurture of God's people? Or are you an isolationist, outback Christian who does your own thing, your own way, at your own time? If you are, honestly, then I encourage you to take the first train back to partnership with God's people and to get involved in the job God wants you to do. He has not assigned for every one of us to be a Tychicus or an Epaphras or certainly an Apostle Paul. Not every one of us will have the capacities or the opportunities to lead many people to Christ the Savior But every one of us needs to be part of this enterprise of leading the lost to Christ, of building up those who respond in the faith, and partnering together and caring about what one another does in this mission. Where are you in that? I call upon each of us to develop a mindset, an orientation of partnership in the gospel. It can start as simply with prayer. It can start simply with prayer. Start with an earnestness to plead for the growth of others within the community of faith. It can start for some of us on Wednesday night as we gather here and seek the face of God together in prayer. Laboring. Do you come Wednesday night to take up a seat here while the kids are trained elsewhere? Or do you come on Wednesday night to labor in prayer? to zealously seek the face of God for the maturity of his people. For those that can be here at that time on Wednesday night or other times of prayer, we can begin there. But we need to develop an orientation that I'm here on this planet 
to advance the cause of Christ. And the foundation of it all is rich. I believe these ending ideas, this close as we come to the end of this book, is really built upon everything that he has said to this place. The foundation of it all is Christ in you and the cosmic effort to see believers mature in Jesus Christ. Chapter 127-2-1 Christ is in you. I labor and toil that you would mature in Jesus. To get a sense of what God is doing as He transforms His people is the way into an orientation that seeks partnership in the cause of the gospel. We come to see what God is doing. He's changing people. And we join in as he leads us to in that cause. The poison in all of this is what? If you think through the book of Colossians, what's the poison? The poison is chapter 3 and verse 2, to love this world. To have an orientation that is not on the things above, but is on the things of this life. That which is fleeting and passing away leads us away from an orientation to press the gospel in partnership with others. And the key is a zeal for God's work. And we get into that zeal for God's work as we follow what chapter 3, verse 5 and 12 say, to put off, to put to death the sins of the flesh and to put on the virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we do that, We long to see that process taking part in the lives of others. So as we put ourselves up against this mirror, it crashes the idea of an isolationist, outback Christian. I know I may speak to some and you say, I don't know what to do next. Just take the next step. Take the next step forward. Ask Interact with your partners in the gospel and begin to move forward in your life striving to see where can I make a difference in the cause of Christ. And if you really want to know, you will ask somebody. There are those who move away from ministry in Christ, who move away from partnership in the gospel saying, nobody ever needed me. Nobody ever wanted me. Nobody ever asked me to do something, which is another way of saying I never cared enough to ask somebody. We need to move forward together as partners in the gospel. We need one another. So step forward. Start with prayer. Start by talking. Start by probing. And above all, let's elevate the cause to which we have been called. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we give thanks to you for these closing words in this book of Colossians. We are grateful for it. We thank you for the ideas that we find here, though it is in some respects what appears to be just a closing down of a book. There is nonetheless a reflection here of a whole culture and orientation, and we are rebuked. We need to be encouraged to consider carefully how we relate to the body of Christ and to the cause of the gospel in this world. For each one of us, I believe, there has been some point of rebuke and correction and place where we need to move forward. I pray for those 
who, weak in the faith, struggle to find any legitimate, zealous involvement in the cause of Christ. And I pray that you would permit them, Father, to take a step forward. For those that are tired in the cause, give comfort and encouragement and strength. Hold us together, Lord, as an assembly. We pray, Father, for anyone who is here that does not know Christ as personal Savior and ask that you would draw that one to saving faith in Jesus today. That they would realize that there is in this partnership what stands behind it is a family of God and a union in Christ through the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection power of Jesus. And I pray that you would open eyes to those who are blind to this truth and bring to saving faith any who would come by your calling to trust in your purposes for salvation. God, move us as an assembly, encourage our hearts, and strengthen us. We pray for the number of people who are away from us today and traveling and will be traveling back, we trust, this evening. We pray that you'll give them encouragement. We thank you for those few who visit here with us today, and we pray that you will encourage their hearts and that each one of us would carefully consider our work in the enterprise of Christ and that we'd move forward. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.